this point, every information portal is saturated with mindfulness content. But this show is a unique, unusual, curious take on mindfulness. Some of what you hear will be completely new to you. Let's dive in and take a look at the nature of the aware mind. I invite you to deepen your awareness so that you may be liberated and inspired. Today we are here with Sarah Vallely, mindfulness teacher, coach, and author. Sarah has been teaching meditation and mindfulness for the past two decades, training and certifying others to teach mindfulness as well. Sarah is the author of four books. Her latest book is titled Tame, Soothe, Dwell, The 55 Teachings of ESD Mindfulness. On this episode, we discuss the mindfulness definitions of depression, the blues, and sadness how they are similar and how they differ. We also discuss practices and techniques that you can use to help you through these inevitable times in our life. This is Jacob Drossett here with Sarah. How are you, Sarah? I'm great, Jacob. Thank you. There is this book called A Stolen Life, and it's a memoir about this woman who is abducted at age 11, I think. And she was held hostage and abused until she was 18 when she found her freedom. And she writes about how she became obsessed with a pine cone. She figured out the reason she was so obsessed with pine cones because a pine cone was the last thing that she looked at before she lost her freedom. I want to put that out to you all. What is your last memory before you realized this pandemic is going to be here for a while and it is going to change life as we know it. I remember the moment that I realized that this is going to be around for a while. Before that, I just kept thinking, oh, in a week, we'll go back to normal. And it actually took me a little while to get to that point because I was working at a psychiatric treatment facility and we weren't wearing masks. We didn't have the patients wearing masks because it was all too triggering. And honestly, that job was so intense. The pandemic took the back seat because we were dealing with runaways. We were putting foam pads on the wall between patients and the wall when they were doing headbanging. We were trained to do takedowns. Uh, So it took me a a little while for it to settle in that this pandemic was going to be around for a while and and really affect our lives. I remember being pretty debilitatingly anxious for myself and feeling really like hopeless that everyone was going to try to ignore it and it was going to be devastating. And and I remember actually when everything shut down, I, I had a huge sense of relief. Prior to that, I just remember feeling debilitating anxiety. So before the pandemic, 8% of Americans were considered to have depression. About a month into the pandemic, about April 2020, that rose to 28% of Americans having depression. That's tripled. A year later, that even went up a little higher. April of 2021, it was 32% of Americans having depression. And the peak was in December 2020. Now we are at about 20% of Americans experiencing depression, which is still high. If we compare that to pre-pandemic statistics of 8% of Americans having depression, now we're at 20%. We still haven't moved back to to pre-pandemic depression rates. And some of the contributing factors 
are even little things that add up, such as this past Christmas, a lot of travel plans were canceled. Bigger things, healthcare workers are seeing hospitals return to similar situations as in 2020 and just starting to feel that sense of, oh, this is happening all over again. Some colleges going back online, which again, oh no, not this again, kind of that re-triggering feeling. I think it's fair to say that politics play a role, no matter what side you're on, such as people who are um, not vaccinated and not able to go to certain establishments. So there's a lot of contributing factors. For me personally, I have two teenagers and their father, my ex-husband has cancer. And so we are all being really careful because of my ex-husband's cancer. And, and that that definitely takes its toll on me personally, you know, the, the isolation and not getting out and doing some of the things that I'd like to do. If you're listening and your mental health has maintained and you feel great and the pandemic isn't affecting you in some of these ways that other Americans are affected, please keep listening because what we talk about today in this episode will help you better understand some of what the people in your life are going through who are having a hard time. What this episode is going to be about is identifying whether you are experiencing depression, the blues, or sadness, and how to use mindfulness to make that differentiation, and how to use mindfulness to address the circumstances, depending on if you're experiencing depression, the blues, or sadness. The DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for depression is having five out of the eight symptoms of depression. I won't go over those symptoms. You can look them up. That's during a two-week period. And I'm not in any way trying to overwrite the DSM-5 definition of depression. I'm going to offer something that you can tack onto this current definition. The TSD mindfulness definition of depression, which is in by no means a replacement for the DSM-5, is feeling difficult emotions such as loss, pain, emptiness, rejection, and believing that they are permanent. So I'm going to repeat that. Depression is feeling difficult emotions such as loss, pain, emptiness, and rejection, and believing they are permanent. Studies show that we can hold four thoughts at a time in our consciousness. So let's imagine that over a five minute period of time, maybe we cycle through 10 thoughts. So the way I like to think about this is we have these maybe 10 compartments that we can each have a thought in each compartment. If you are depressed, each one of those compartments is filled with a thought that has something to do with permanence. It might be, there's no end, I'm doomed, I can't get out of this misery. And so when we're in that place, sitting and practicing mindfulness doesn't make any sense because we have bought into this idea of it being permanent. So imagine there's a rock that weighs a ton and you can't move the rock no matter what. So you wouldn't go over and try to move the rock because you know you can't move it. So that's kind of how we are when we're depressed. We probably aren't going to go sit and meditate because in our minds, we know it's not going to help. So the medical take on the difference between depression and the blues is how long it lasts and how much it affects your daily life. This mindfulness definition of the blues is a little bit different. Again, consider those 10 compartments with your thoughts. And if we're having the blues, some of those compartments contain thoughts that have to do with permanence. I'm doomed. I can't get out of this misery. There's no end. But some compartments 
have thoughts that have to do with impermanence. This sucks, but I'll get through it. Maybe I'll feel better tomorrow. If I take a walk, I should feel better. One day this shall pass. And then the third category is sadness. And this is healthy sadness. In this situation, most or all of your compartments have thoughts that are filled with ideas about it being temporary. And then let's say we also have 10 compartments that hold our emotions. So we might be feeling loss, sadness, pain, regret, abandonment, inadequacy. So we're feeling those genuine emotions, but our mental capacities are filled with thoughts about it being temporary. And that's actually a really healthy place to be in. That will lead to processing through those emotions. It will lead to healing. This is what Tara Brock talks a lot about and Kristen Neff uh, about this idea of leaning into these emotions in a healthy way and knowing that this is temporary. And this happens to me. I will feel this sadness and move through it. And then I feel really stable and good for, for a few days or a couple of weeks. You just had me realize a time in my life when I was depressed versus another time in my life where I was using mindfulness and mm-hmm. sitting a lot. And one time I had less reasons for depression and one I had a lot more. So a few years ago, I had a panic attack and I believe I've, I've talked about that on mm-hmm. the podcast had a panic attack. And the thing about having a panic attack is, is if you don't know what's going on and you don't know what caused it, you don't have anything to attach it to. And Mm -hmm. one of your tics is control. It can cause a a depressive episode. I assume this is common. It happened to me and, and people that I know where I was like, okay, any moment now I could have a panic attack. It could happen anytime. You know, what's the point? There's no way out of this. I have no way of controlling this. So that caused me to get very bummed out and I remember even having a period where I was couldn't even understand how somebody could make plans for a year in advance. Like you don't even know if you're going to be alive. How could you even do that? So that was a very thick veil. There was not a lot of positive thoughts going on. I wasn't really seeing out. And then it went away over time. A a lot of uh, life changes happened and I started sitting a lot. So anyway, flash forward to a few years later. Recently, actually, I had an injury that kept me from moving for a month. I had to basically be sedentary. I moved to a new city. I didn't really know a whole lot of people. I was taking a gigantic financial hit. I remember having a really firm idea that, oh, this is obviously impermanent. I Mm -hmm. obviously will be able to lift weights again. I'll be able to move my body again. I will make more money and I will make more friends. I know Mm -hmm. that these things are going to happen. But had I have not had those tactics, that would have been a very serious episode. So you saying all these things, it really helped me to identify that I had the blues recently and I had depression years ago, but they were unequivocal events. Like what happened more recently, I had a lot more reasons to be experiencing a a depressive episode, but because of all the practice that I've done, I, I felt very confident in the fact that it would end. You've done so much reading and studying of Buddhism. The crux of Buddhism is impermanence. That's such a big part of the path and the practice. It seems like a simple concept, but it underlies every single thing in our life. And it really helps us start to see our attachments and our cravings and our avoidant tendencies and can be a huge push to help us through depression. 
if anyone is experiencing a almost an uncontrollable level of depression, if, if even, you know, what we're recommending doesn't sound feasible, we should probably recommend people go and, mm-hmm. and seek help. And especially things like I know that really deep sadness and things go synonymous with things like, you know, suicide and, and mm-hmm. should 100% consult all resources if they're experiencing anything mm-hmm. like that. This is more of a prescription for someone mm-hmm. who is noticing a very acute episode, I would say, or perhaps chronic, but one that they still feel that they have mm-hmm. some amount of control over harnessing. If you feel like you're anywhere farther down that spectrum of you should absolutely go and seek professional help. Ideally, if you're struggling with depression, you're already under the care of a doctor and the information that we're sharing in this episode is something that you can add to what you're already doing. If you are experiencing depression, and so that means according to the mindfulness definition that I'm giving here, all of your mental capacities are filled with thoughts about it being permanent, then my recommendation is to simply sit there and say, I'm depressed right now because I bought into the idea that this is permanent. This is what I do. This happened to me just last week. It's like when your alarm is going off at six in the morning and you're trying to wake up, you're trying to wake up your consciousness and it's, it's a struggle and you're trying and you're trying. And that's what it's like when you say to yourself, I'm depressed right now because I bought into the idea that this is permanent. You just keep saying it maybe five times, waking yourself up and waking yourself up out of it. Uh, Mindfulness is a real reality check. The other core driving force of mindfulness is opening up to the reality of what is happening right now. And since your mental compartments are all filled with this idea of permanence, using mental processes is actually very difficult to address depression. And I would say sitting and practicing mindfulness is a mental process. And so that's one of the reasons why that's tricky. And how we can use mindfulness to help us when we're in that depression state is to become mindful of any upward waves. Maybe just for 10 seconds, you feel a little bit better. So being mindful of when that upward wave happens and then jumping on it, going and taking a cold shower to stimulate your vagus nerve, exercising. Drew uh, Huberman, Andrew Huberman, I'm not actually totally sure how to say his last name. And he was talking about the neuroscience of happiness and dopamine and serotonin. When I was going through my recent bout of the blues and I couldn't move and things like that, I couldn't do intense exercise. I couldn't do a lot of bending and things like that, uh, but I could walk. So I made a real commitment to the science. I said, okay, I know scientifically that this is the right thing for me to do. So I woke up every morning and take off walking. I'm very lucky to live next to a beautiful mountain. And it was about a 15 minute walk up. And at the top, I would be pretty uh, hard respiration. I'd be breathing through my nose, but it would be, you know, a little bit taxed. So I'd be, had a stimulation of exercise. I'd get up at the top and I would slow my respiration six seconds in, six seconds out. And then I would make my vision very wide. I would try to take in everything I could. And I, I don't remember the exact science on this, but it's something about pupil dilation and then getting that sun exposure also early in the morning, slow my respiration, I would get to the bottom and I would take a cold shower. This was my cocktail. I did this Mm -hmm. and it 100% was like a medical prescription. It helped me a ton. And then first thing in the morning, I would be having thoughts during this time of the negative thoughts, but I knew that if I leaned into the science on this, my brain chemistry and stuff, I was able to sleep at night. I was able to have somewhat of a, of a glimmer of a positivity throughout my day. So the research out there for mindfulness and depression 
is primarily dedicated to showing how mindfulness helps us avoid depression. It's preventative, specifically how a mindfulness practice helps us prevent a relapse. And the reason this is, is because of the way our brain works. There are tracks in our brain that we use when we are not concentrating, when we are daydreaming, and when we are um, what they call mind wandering. And this part of the brain is called the default mode network. And what the research shows, if we are prone to depression and we spend a lot of time in the default mode network, meaning we're not concentrated on something and we are doing mind wandering and daydreaming, that often leads to depression. Mindfulness pulls us out of the default mode network because it involves concentration. As far as the blues, a sitting practice in mindfulness is helpful for that. My definition of mindfulness is paying attention to sights, sounds, physical sensations, breath, paying attention to thoughts and emotion, paying attention to the way we are paying attention to our thoughts, emotions, and stimuli in our environment. The loving kindness meditation can be really helpful, that self-compassion I hear time and time again from my students and my clients how life-changing the loving-kindness practice is for them. And just, yeah, basically we choose somebody outside of ourselves, and we wish them happiness, have peace, be free. And then we choose possibly ourselves next. And then we choose all beings, may all beings be happy, may all beings be free, may all beings be at peace. There's different variations. Well, I start with somebody that it's easy for me to feel very good emotions towards. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I usually build to people that I have near neutral and then neutral feelings about. Typically, mm -hmm. I use a barista, just somebody I can visualize their face, wishing them happiness and love. Ideally, you know, you can build this practice up to people that you really don't like very much. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've gotten to people that annoy me and done it with them. And that, and this feels very good, but I've never gotten to people that I don't, I don't care for, you know, like uh, people that I think yeah. are, are problematic. Yeah. That's the goal though. I'm working towards it. And yeah, it is so powerful and changes people's lives. And it's kind of like a little bit threatening to my livelihood because like, maybe you don't really need to hire me as your mindfulness coach. Maybe you don't need to take my mindfulness classes. All you need to do is just practice loving kindness and, <laughs> and then it'll cure all your problems. But it is, it's a super powerful practice. Like the most powerful practice I've ever done to sit and just wish people well. It feels very good. And I'll say that you mentioned during the sadness to have self-compassion. I was not somebody that was... I didn't understand that at all. I, first off, I wasn't in tune with my emotions at all, but then to wish myself compassion seemed weird and wrong. Now it's gotten a lot easier. I, I have access to those emotions now. And I believe that if I wouldn't have been doing this practice, I would not have that. A certain exercise that I like to give my clients to help them with the blues, taking a few minutes, maybe five minutes out of your day for the first few minutes, considering different aspects of your life and putting a satisfaction level on it. Maybe it's your job. What is your satisfaction level with your job? Maybe it's your primary relationship. What is your satisfaction level in your primary relationship? Considering different aspects of your life for no other reason, just that they are there in your life. And then shifting your attention toward the present moment and noticing your satisfaction level of the present moment. And that is noticing the temperature in the room, noticing the furniture that you're sitting on. What's your satisfaction level? Noticing the desk that you're sitting in front of, you know, just these things that are right there in your moment. What is your satisfaction level? And what usually happens 
is people find that their satisfaction level on these aspects of their life are lower than if they bring it into the present moment. Their satisfaction level on the present moment is actually not too bad. That's a really great practice for just showing you, proving to yourself that, you know what, if I stay in the present moment, it's not too bad. Consider the stages of grief if you're having the blues. My clients are often in the bargaining stage. What the bargaining stage is, is we are in denial that we need to go through a grieving process. It's a little bit different than the denial stage. The denial stage, we are in denial that the event happened, right? We're in the denial that, you know, we're in a pandemic maybe. But when we move through and we get to the bargaining stage, we don't deny that the event is happening. We realize it's happening, but we're denying our need to go through a grieving process to heal through it. A lot of people get stuck in that stage. The stages, again, are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and moving into acceptance. What I help my clients with is identify that they're in that bargaining stage to use mindfulness to move into this healthy state of sadness so they experience the depression stage in a healthy way. So I move through that sadness stage by really embracing their emotions and keeping their mental capacities in a state where they realize that this is temporary. If we're experiencing sadness, my recommendation is to limit trying to figure out what's going on, trying to limit that logical thinking and also limit self-critical thoughts and keep those 10 compartments that house your different thoughts filled with thoughts about this being impermanent. This sucks, but I'll get through it. Maybe I'll feel better tomorrow. If I take a walk, I should feel better. And one day this too shall pass. Hold these authentic emotions of sadness in your heart and feel it. Have a physical response to these feelings of sadness, abandonment, rejection, inferiority. Even though it's, it's difficult, it does lead to healing. Having a physical response such as crying, collapsing, shrieking. This is a practice of mindfulness because we're leaning in to the authentic experience and we're doing it while we understand that this is a temporary state. Use self-compassion. Practice might be validation. Just letting yourself know it's understandable that I'm feeling this pain. It's understandable that I'm feeling this loss. Self-compassion of comfort, stating that um, even though I feel the sadness, I'm loved. Even though I feel the sadness, I'm worthy of that love. I'm connected and I am a good person. The Aware Mind Podcast is a TSD Mindfulness production. Please visit our website at tsdmind.org. That is T as in tame, S as in soothe, and D as in dwell. Mind as in mindfulness.org. Check out our blog post for this episode with links to supplemental information such as worksheets you can use to put into practice the mindfulness skills shared in this episode. Also, please sign up for our newsletter and receive mindfulness tips. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at aware underscore mind underscore podcast. Thank you.